at least judge if you can form that relationships because sometimes what happens is you look at this and it looks to you like a very small job uh, prototyping work something like a one-off but then it becomes a big business uh, it becomes like uh, another highly valuable customer this is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graf. Our guest on today's show is Adar Hay, co-founder and CEO of Giga, a company providing a web platform for manufacturing buyers and suppliers to communicate and establish new relationships. It's ironic how in today's world, in which we have so many channels to communicate and network, it's still complicated to do those things. Giga's mission is to simplify those processes. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. I am very honored to be with Adar Hay, co-founder and CEO of Giga. Welcome to the show, Adar. Thank you, Noah. Glad to be here. Where does this podcast find you? Well, I'm constantly looking for podcasts in machining and manufacturing, especially since I didn't come originally from that space. Mm -hmm. I'm really enjoying to learn about it. It's a very fascinating space. And that's where I found yours. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly looking for relevant keywords. Oh, good. Good. No, uh, well, what I meant is, where are you talking to me from? Oh, I'm talking to you from our office. Uh, our office is headquartered in Tel Aviv, Israel. Give me the basics about Giga. What is Giga? Sure. So maybe we can start with the problem that we set out to solve. Sure. We noticed that engineers and technical people, when they want to get a part manufactured, they will have to email suppliers back and forth. And it gets messy and it gets manual very quickly. Uh, which hurts the manufacturer. It hurts, obviously, like the company, the engineers. Uh, the data is spread all around and there's a lot of time that goes to waste. And that's just a huge inefficiency in the industry. So and it's confusing. Tried, Emails get yeah. lost and some people are organized and some people aren't. Yeah, but just, you know, you have to, let's say you have to produce one part. You have to send out an RFQ at least to like, maybe one supplier, maybe three, but then you have to compare everything. And then there's maybe a change and you'll have to send these changes to everyone. And if you multiply that by the number of parts that engineers uh, constantly ordering, so it gets 
tedious and it gets problematic and there's a lot of wasted costs and time involved. Okay. So you discovered this problem? Yes. What is Giga? Giga is is a way of, of dealing with this obstacle? Right. Right. So now let's go to the solution. So the solution is uh, we've built an online platform, a digital platform to um, streamline that process. And uh, the way that companies work with our platform right now, and probably what's really different from what people might know in the market is that uh, the engineers can work with their own suppliers using that platform and request for quotes and manage that process, centralize all the data in one place. And also they can discover new suppliers to work with, but the interaction is direct, is fully direct. Nothing is interrupting them from working together to figure out what they need. Um, we only streamline the process. We only automate a lot of the, of the tasks that usually they do manually. Right. So unlike, say, Zometry, or there's a bunch of them out there um, that kind of take a more active role as the middleman, you're more, let's let's put them in touch with each other, show people some options, and then they'll connect. Yeah, you know, the, the number one problem that people mentioned is that they have no efficient way to connect with suppliers directly, which is like manufacturing is based on relationships and suppliers want to maintain valuable customer relationships and, and buyers want suppliers that they can trust. But then the the actual work together is very inefficient. So we do take an active role sometimes when there are mediation needs, when there are payment needs, when there are problems just to make that process efficient. But we don't take charge of the whole chain and interface with the customer ourselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think in a way that must make people feel comfortable and uh, that they don't have to trust who knows who, you know, they, they put their drawing in and then all right fingers crossed that they're going to send me the right person and this person is going to be good and i mean they tell you that they're vetting their people yeah. but so you do vet though the suppliers that are able to come on yeah yeah definitely we vet them really so to say tightly how do you do um, how do you vet them so we get them to pro to produce a test order and we gradually start getting them uh, jobs uh, from, from our customers, but not uh, the bigger ones up front. Uh, we use certifications to validate uh, that they're of a certain quality. And also we usually don't just allow anyone to come in. Um, we usually go with recommendations from our current buyers base um, and people who just know that they already worked with the supplier and they recommend us to add them to, to the network. Uh, so that's usually the way that it works. Our goal is not to have like the biggest chain, the biggest, I would say, network of suppliers, but just to maintain a very high quality, very trustworthy one. Do you feel like you're actually wanting it not to be that big? Like that's part of the, the attraction to it? sort of the paradox of choice and you know people don't want to be overwhelmed by it and also people figure smaller pool this hopefully they're better that's a great point that's one of the things that we're doing is we give the buyers opportunities to work with suppliers who match what they need and we do a lot of work on the back end to 
make sure that the suppliers that they see can make those parts and can make them reliably. So we gather a lot of information from suppliers and constantly check that it works. So we don't get a lot of no quotes or stuff that don't match or suppliers who don't want this kind of client. So for example, if a supplier doesn't want to work with a customer with uh, that just wants to do one-offs, that's okay. Um, he'll probably just decline the quote. Um, so we're okay with not showing this supplier to the buyer. So we're constantly um, making sure that uh, suppliers that are shown are good fit with what the buyer wants and we direct them to the right option and not getting them overwhelmed with too many options. Do you talk to these people um, personally before you put them on the platform or you just kind of research it? Do you talk to the CEO of these companies or? Yeah, so we do both. We obviously research uh, these companies and we also have a very strict onboarding process, which contains like a lot of uh, steps that you have to learn how to work with the platform. And it's very interesting to understand like the difference between uh, the existing suppliers of the companies that we work with and the outside suppliers, that's a major difference because the outside suppliers already know how to work with the platform, how to provide the information. So we, we have to maintain two different approaches. How are you supposed to grow um, if you're trying to keep it sort of an intimate group of the highest quality? Um, you know, we do grow and we constantly get approached by manufacturers who want to join, obviously, because of the attractive manner of what we're doing, um, but we want to do it gradually because if we just grow the network too much, so what will happen is suppliers won't get enough jobs to for it to be attractive and also buyers will get uh, suppliers who don't really know how to work with the system or don't really value it as much. Uh, so we really try to maintain like balance between the two sides. And the business model is interesting in that regard as well because we are not uh, charging a lot of transaction fees. We actually charge subscription fees from the buyers. Okay, the so what are, so yeah, tell us where the revenue comes from. Sure, so companies that buy parts from a certain volume, uh, it makes sense for them to use it as a software platform. You know, it's like, picture it as an RFQ software or a procurement software for that specific purpose. If you buy enough parts, that's, uh, a huge added value because it's meant for that vertical. And it allows us to do a lot of things that improve productivity for that specific vertical. It allows us to support manufacturing files and revisions and engineering communication and uh, all sorts of different aspects that are specific for that industry. And it integrates with people's ERP or many. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. It integrates with ERP, it integrates with other systems as well because we are treated as a software company and, and for a software company, you're used to paying a subscription fee. So some customers use our platform only for working with their own suppliers. Oh, I see. So even if people have already found their customers, but they just use your platform just because of ease of use, it's not even for networking necessarily. Yeah, I mean, if they find their own suppliers, they have some companies have established relationships. You you can think about like engineering agencies or or even like just large enterprises uh, that have established relationships with their suppliers. It's also useful for them because it just reduces a lot of 
the amount of time that engineers waste and also the amount of time it takes to generate the purchase order. So just reducing that time of back and forth emailing and file management and collaboration, this is usually something that happens via emails, spreadsheets, manual methods, uh, the memory of the engineer. So just things that can be automated and can be data-driven, and there's a lot of savings and a lot of things that you can do if you just make that efficient. Okay. And so in addition to the subscription model, you also facilitate transactions, which I think probably makes people feel safe. Um, what kind of fees do you get for the transactions and what kind of value do the people get for, the tra- for you facilitating it? It's a great question and the, the fees vary, um, but it's, uh, it's low fees. So it's between like uh, four to 6% usually of the transaction. It depends on its size. And what people get is the buyer protection. We, um, we mediate in case uh, of any trouble. And even if it's a customer who didn't, who don't buy a lot of parts, uh, they get the power of negotiation and he cannot do uh, problems to our customers, you know? So if there's a, a part that's not to spec, we can tell the supplier, okay, remake it, redo it. We pay the supplier on, on the customer's behalf. Uh, so he doesn't have to onboard each and every new supplier to, to their own systems. And we just use that as a service for the buyers. Um, another thing that we do is we have an ops team that makes sure that the suppliers update every uh, notification about deliveries or or statuses of their orders, so engineers don't have to, or purchasing managers don't have to uh, follow up on orders. Make sure that they are on time. Make sure that the changes are made correctly. So all these stuff. So we also have a support and an operations team to deal with that. Interesting, interesting. Um, when we were talking before, you said one of the main things that you're trying to achieve is that. Often things just come down to money. Who's going to quote it cheaper? This is something that you're you're trying to to fight against. Just having it be all about price. I'm not sure if I'm going to fight against it. Obviously, there it's a competitive world, and if a buyer wants to go with the cheapest quote, that's fine. But that's just how it happens naturally. I don't try to race them to the bottom. Uh, and oftentimes uh, people go with the more expensive quotes just because suppliers gave them better DFM feedback or because he gave uh, better lead times or because he was he looked more as a better fit for their own works because we give a lot of information about what the suppliers can and cannot do and ratings and stuff like that. Uh, so these all come into consideration in a transparent way. And that's how people make a decision, right? Also in the outside of the online platforms, that's how people make decisions eventually. Where are these clients in the world? Are, are in Asia and North America and Israel, Europe? The companies who buy, you mean? Yeah, the companies who supply and the companies who buy. Yeah, so all over, I guess. We have suppliers and buyers all over the world. Um, they are from Europe. They are from the United States. Uh, suppliers are from the United China? States. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, China, mostly suppliers, um, as you as you may imagine. Uh, India, um, United States, of course. So all over the world. Right. So I could see the vetting being the most important if somebody's going across the world. Yeah. And just to specify for our listeners, you know, our listeners are doing often large volumes of parts. 
Um, but there are some that are doing smaller amounts, smaller groups of parts. What is your clientele generally? Are these people who are doing lots of 10, one? So interestingly enough, we have a wide variety of things. We have uh, large production orders in the hundreds of thousands uh, of pieces. Uh, and I checked uh, from your questions before the interview, it's hundreds of thousands of pieces. Oh, okay. Um, injection molded but there are some times where it's like um, one unit of each um, the interesting thing here is that because um, we allow this to facilitate relationships there is trust involved and then customers can really uh, make sure that they trust the supplier they order like a few prototyping orders they might go to production through the platform so this is something that's constantly happening people are using that for maintenance as well um, so all sorts of types of orders. Interesting. You mentioned um, that it's countries from all over the world. What are you seeing as far as supply chain ups and downs right now? Is it getting smoother? Is it just as bad as it has been? You're you're you've got some good ears in this realm, right? Yeah. So uh, definitely, supply chain challenges are happening, and and I would say at least not getting better um, right now. Uh, and it happens all over the world from what I see. Uh, it's more in the, I would say, it's more in the electronics side on the specific electronics components. Semiconductors? Yeah, yeah, as well. Like specific electronic components that people are really miss and really fight for in, in order to get. So I heard like crazy stories about people who really fight and, and use their network in order to get uh, their parts on time. Uh, so it's definitely a struggle for many, especially for uh, the smaller companies. Uh, for custom manufacturing, for custom mechanical manufacturing, I think that it's less of a problem just because there are many shops that can make your, your parts, especially if you don't need like to, to ship it from far away. Uh, so people who use local shops might take that into account. So they won't risk with shipping and delays and stuff like that. Um, but it's, I would say less of a problem in the mechanical side. Okay. Interesting. But probably you would say that it's keeping some manufacturing more domestic. Yes. Just because um, people don't want to risk not getting their parts on time. Exactly. Hey, listeners, I first just want to say thank you for tuning in. I know you could be spending your time doing a whole bunch of other things right now. I'm trying hard to build our audience for this podcast. And as you might imagine, it's not easy. Rather than just ask you to rate and review the show, which I would love if you did, I want to try something different. I would be eternally grateful if you could stop this episode for a moment and think of one person who would enjoy the show and then send them a text message to recommend it. Okay, I will now assume you've taken care of that. Back to the show. What are the biggest mistakes that companies make when they form new partnerships as, as far as what you see? That's a great question. I think that one of the interesting things that we see is that some suppliers take uh, too much time to quote. It's a big issue for, for customers who uh, already make up their minds until they get a quote back um, or at least get an answer back. Um, and this is this comes to my second 
I would say, insight where. So you're saying the mistake, this is a mistake they're making, which is costing them business. Cost them business. And, but I understand the shops. I mean, it's, it's really hard to quote to everyone. And, and some people just use them just to benchmark. Um, so it's really frustrating for them. And I understand that it's, it's much, it's too much work. And there are tools out there. Like uh, I know of uh, paperless parts uh, that automate uh, quotes. Uh, so there are tools out there that help companies with that. I think that it's really important to quote on time, but also to, if you don't quote on time, just give feedback on time because stay in communication. Exactly. Like one thing I also see is that companies sometimes like take the parts and just don't, don't communicate anything and just come back with a quote, like one week after that, that's too late. Um, at least give them some kind of feedback. If it's like, a huge RFQ package and you have to, and it's like a new client, you have to uh, form that relationships with them. Maybe you can give them some valuable feedback. Maybe you can tell them something that would be uh, interesting for them. And they will say, oh, this person, yeah. it, it might not give me the fastest quote or the best lead time or the best price, but he knows his stuff. It's also demonstrative though, I think too, that you have so many different balls going, you have so many different things you're quoting. So if I'm a customer, I'm thinking that I'm just a number, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You don't want it to, to appear as, as a commodity. You want to have high value clients that um, appreciate you, that will give you the jobs uh, that you're quoting for. So I know that machine shops have like, at least in their minds, if not in their CRMs, uh, uh, preferably, uh, they have this in their minds that some clients are more important to quote for than others. Some clients are more likely to turn into business than others. Right? 80, 20. Yeah. So you want to invest in quoting and, and treating your, your high value customers. So um, if you get a new request, uh, what I would suggest is at least like, if not working hard to quote it, so at least judge if, you can form that relationships because sometimes what happens is you look at this and it looks to you like a very small job uh, prototyping work, something like a one-off, but then it, it becomes a big business. Uh, it becomes like another highly valuable customer, right? Yeah. It's very astute. And, and what we see in our platform is that people start with um, like when they start working with a new supplier, they won't immediately like give you a, a call request for, a large number of parts, a very diverse. They would start by giving you something maybe sm small, maybe modest. They would want to see how you react. They want to see your communication. So don't miss those, right? Try to at least evaluate if that's a good opportunity for you to become a, a highly valuable customer down the line. That's totally, that makes total sense. You know, people should pick up the phone and talk and yeah. Any, any other, any other, things you see that causes deals to go bad or causes people to miss business? I would say um, like in every form of business, I would say trust is really important. If you give something that's out of spec or if you mistreat your customer, you know that, that these things happen, but it makes a lot more sense to be fair. And if you made a mistake to take it on you, if you miss something, so make up for it because then customers just put an X on your name, right? And you don't want to do that. It might become a huge customer and very highly valuable. So you don't want to miss this customer just because of that specific uh, deal. And customers, a lot of the time, they have like multiple engineers 
uh, and multiple employees that talk and decide to work with you more and more and, and expand the business with you. So these are some of the things that we see uh, that are important to, to, to think about. Yeah, no, it is so much about your reputation and networking. Yeah. Exactly. I want to learn a little bit more about you because I can tell that there's, you've got some interesting background first. So you're Israeli. Yeah. Where did you grow up in Israel? I grew up in Northern Israel, um, more nature there, less uh, cars and, and buildings and moved to, to the center. It's not a long hour, a long drive. It's just one hour. It's a very small country. Um, but yeah, that's where I grew. I, I had an amazing childhood uh, in the nature. <laughs> so, Interesting. And then you, but when did you get into technology? Uh, so right when I finished my service, it's mandatory in, in Israel. Um, military service. Military service, yeah. Uh, I wanted to just get into the startup world. And my friend told me that he knows this startup founder um, that does really cool stuff. And I told him like, yeah, I want to talk to him. Now let me, let me talk to him. And I was chasing down this guy. I was, uh, I went to training sessions with him uh, just so I can talk to him in the beginning. He said no, but after a while he agreed to give me a free internship without, with no pay, uh, at the beginning. So you're, you're, are you a programmer in your background or just more business? Uh, more business. Yeah. I, I was doing marketing products, uh, all, all types of work. And, and what was interesting in, in the free internship was that I was able to do everything and then trust was, was formed and I was able to do other things. So that's where I started, but then a lot of things happened since then. Sure. How old are you? I'm 30, almost 30. Yeah. Would you say that Israel is a great place for entrepreneurs and particularly tech companies? Well, you can see it in the numbers. If you uh, read reports and stuff like that, um, there's a huge number of, of startups and founders and, and money that's being raised. Like I think maybe around 10 billion raised only this quarter or something like that. Um, don't, don't catch me with the exact number, sure. but I think that's really a really amazing place where a lot of innovation starts and it starts from the culture and, and a lot of other things as a very supportive. What is it in the culture? Like, you know, I, I'm Jewish, so I, I have all kinds of hypothesis. Maybe you've thought about these things. Maybe you haven't. I'll shoot a couple ideas. Number one, you know, I think it's part of Jewish culture to emphasize education. And number two, I feel like the people that are entrepreneurs often are people, they're people who aren't afraid about losing things. They come from a certain perspective. I was talking to an Israeli guy, an entrepreneur a couple of weeks ago. I mean, this guy is retired. He, he lives in the United States. He started a construction business here. He made zillions of dollars <laughs> and was trying to find out what, what makes him tick. And he's like, well, you know, I was in the Yom Kippur war uh, that was 1971, 73, 1973. And he's like, you know, after being in that and, you know, seeing people die and it's like, I have nothing to lose, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, you hear that about immigrants coming to the United States now or in the past. Do you feel like being in a, I mean, I, look, I I've been to Israel. I know it's not, you don't feel like you're in danger walking around or whatever at all. You feel in many respects safer than you do walking around in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. 
but nevertheless, you were in the army. When you're in the army and you're you're out there and you've got some enemies around you that that aren't big fans of your country, is that something that causes people to be into to be entrepreneurs after getting out of the the service? There's something there's something about you. That's a great question. I'm not sure. Uh, if I know the, the exact answer, maybe that had an impact on me. You know, you see, um, you, you take huge risks when you're so young. Probably it, it makes you think a little bit differently about, about life. Um, I would say, yeah, in the culture, there is something about it that encourages risk and, and is okay with, um, with failure. Is really mm-hmm. okay with failure. It even celebrates failure in a way that, like, there there's a lot of failures. I failed a lot of times, uh, and I still do. So these kind of failures just form your your ability to to eventually build something because you're not that afraid to fail. You know what I mean? So yeah. See, I'm afraid to fail. Maybe if I grew up in Israel, I wouldn't be so afraid to fail. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's even in the sense of like companies respect people who failed and they are ready to hire them. So you, even if you fail, you know that like um, it's not the end of the world. Like th- there's obviously risk involved. There's obviously like you you might lose money. You might uh, not not have salary, like all sorts of things. But at least in terms of like culture wise, you feel like a hero. You know what I mean? Um, you feel good with yourself that you're building something new, even if you're like most of the times you fail, you know, because that's startup life. But that's that's, I think, something about the culture that makes it easier in a way. That is really interesting that people have a that there's a feeling that that failure is OK. Yes. Yes. That's essential. That's essential for success, I would say. Um, because if you are afraid to fail, you will never do anything because starting something is failing. I mean, even if you're successful, starting something is failing. That is very interesting. Go, yes, go with that. And I think, I think that like our audience of, of machinists or anyone who builds their own business is are people that I really respect because they are, they made an investment, they're taking this risk and they might not succeed. Like building a business is, is freaking hard in many ways. Like it's harder than, than starting a technology company and raise money uh, because you have to like bootstrap your own and make your first bucks yourself. So I was in that hat as well. I had my own business and it was, it was not easy. So uh, definitely respect that, that attitude. So first you had a totally different business and, yes. and then this you went and you went to venture capitalists and got funding for it. Yeah. It wasn't that simple, but yeah. What was your first business? My first business was uh, in B2B marketing. I was consulting and built a consulting company around the marketing and, and international digital marketing services. And did that just get stale to you? That's why you wanted to do this? Yeah, I, I, I guess I lost something there in, a, in, in one point and I was just like, I want to do something different. It happens. Um, it's, it's hard to make that change sometimes because it's like you have a stable business, you have your yeah. employees, you have your team already. Uh, like you have a lot of 
clients, they are happy. Uh, so you've, you've went through all of these. Sunk costs. Yeah, exactly. There's some costs and you went all of these and the business was already like in a good shape and it wasn't, most of the time wasn't like that. So it's hard to make a move. You know, it's just like moving from a company that you work for and you got a lot of bonuses and you now move to something else. It's like any change that you make in your career is like, is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. You're cashing in your chips basically. Yeah. And you don't know what's next. You, you might be really disappointed, but uh, there's, there's a saying that I hear quite often recently that you're, you're regretting life on things that you didn't do, not on things that you did. Right. So if you didn't start this, so that's what you would regret, right? If you, if you didn't do that move. Yeah. And so first you had the other business that came after being in the army. What was the exact chain of events? I worked in a few companies, a few startups, um, uh, companies that gave services in sales and marketing roles, learned a few stuff. Um, then I decided to start my business pretty early, like uh, in terms of like the career path. I didn't know, in, in retrospect, I probably didn't know enough about marketing to start a marketing business when I started, but uh, this is probably a good way to to start when you're when you don't know that you don't know, yes. it's good because then you learn on the move and you you understand later how much you don't know, but then you already know, right? So yeah, that's probably the chain, the, the, the way that it went. What's the hardest thing about living in Israel? Ooh. And what's the best thing? Start with whatever, whichever one you want. <laughs> I think the hard thing is that uh, things are expensive uh, in this country uh, relatively to what you earn so yeah. high taxes high taxes yeah there's a lot of expenses just of, of living even the products that you buy is, is expensive are expensive um and it rises uh so also, like residents like houses are, are expensive everything um the good thing uh I, I would say the culture i love the culture i love the people and they are very warm and uh very very fun to be with so um so that's probably why I will, I would probably stay and never, never leave um, before, because just, I really like the people. They're very warm. They're very caring. And uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because everybody's Jewish. I mean, not everybody, but yeah, most yet probably a lot of people don't know this, but I mean, there's, there's a lot of diversity amongst Jews in Israel. You know, you've got the, Sephardi Jews from the Eastern countries and the Ashkenazi Jews from mm -hmm. Europe. And so I'm a mix of both, right? Right. So, I, I mean, I've heard different things that people are segregated. And then I've heard that, you know, people are, are a mix. So you're a mix. I'm a mix. Yeah. So one parent is one and one parent is the other. Exactly. Yeah. And my wife is as well. So definitely a lot of mixes already. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's diverse and there's a lot of subcultures. So, and, and it's, a, it's very interesting for such a small country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a couple other things. Um, what is something that you learned recently? Uh, just something random or, or something maybe that you read or heard in a podcast or something that, that just struck a chord. Interesting question. Um, there are many things, but I, I think that's something that, uh, came to my mind recently, uh, which was very important is 
that you have to maintain this frame that you don't touch when things get busy. Uh, you have to get enough sleep. You have to train. You have to be with your loved ones. You have to take time to relax and meditate. You have to do these things. Uh, even if things get like, and, and startup life is hectic and you always have more than you can take. Uh, but if, if you don't do that and if you don't like, you're not very strict about doing that and not just letting it split off, you're very fast. You just become unproductive, not, not to mention like the, the negative impacts on your life, which are obvious to everyone, but you're also becoming unproductive because so you you're saying do... when you push too hard, then you're less productive. Yes, because you can do certain things within an hour and you can be, you can complete, you know, that feeling when you, when you completed in one hour more than you completed like in two days. Yes. Um, so these hours happen more if your mind is sharp, if you slept well, if you trained, if you did all of these things, um, less if you were like tired. So, and, and you're, you're bothered with many things and you didn't care, take care of yourself. I mean, if I don't train, I, I really feel bad. You mean I, tra I feel, train meaning, meaning workout? I, I mean, if I don't work, yeah, if we don't, sorry, if I don't work out, I, I feel bad and I feel I might get sad because of negative things more easily. And then if I'm sad, I'm less productive. So all of this is very important to take care of. And I think that's a good, a good insight for everyone. Not just, yeah, not just startup life. Yeah. Do you have, do you have kids by any chance? No. Probably harder with it's this. Probably harder when, when, yeah, my, my co-founders are, do have kids. So it's, it definitely gets harder to maintain these things, but I will definitely do that as well, because I know that if you dedicate these hours, you, you know, that you're going to be productive in the rest of these hours. Yes. Well, I just had a child, so I know I'm learning. I'm learning. How to, thank you. Thank you. Um, just anything else that you'd like to say to the people of the world before we wrap this up? Uh, just if uh, anyone wants to connect with me, I always like uh, to to be in touch. And uh, I, I'm also a podcaster like you, Noah. We talked yes. about that as well. You can, uh, I would love you to also follow. It's called Design to Product. Uh, it's about hardware and manufacturing. And um, if anyone wants to connect with me, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm Adar Hay, A-D-A-R-H-A-Y. Um, so feel free to connect with me and tell me what you think about anything. I would love that. Awesome. And I have listened to the podcast. It's very interesting. Um, there was a podcast about pizza and uh, yeah. I, that was a good one. Yeah. Developing a machine to create the pizza. Yeah. And we have some really fascinating things uh, that are, that will be coming out. I'm really excited about them. So, so I will send it to you. Noah. How you, far you, ahead you, do you work on your podcast? Are you like, you're much more organized than I am, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I already like, I, I built a system to, uh, to, to make it as easy as possible for me because I'm, I have to take care of other things as well. Um, so definitely have to dedicate time for that, but I'm trying to automate or delegate as much as possible. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. 
Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. Music